Well, I can see that the congregation is curious. What about the new guy? What does he look like? Well, here I am, for better or for worse. You might also be asking, will we like him? Now, that one I can answer too. The answer is yes, because I'm going to like you. That's the way it works. Another question is, is he going to make any changes, or is he going to make any changes that I don't like? And for some of you, that's the same question. And lastly, what are his goals and agenda? Uh, my goal is a simple one. It's given in Scripture. We are, I want us to be a people who love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's our goal. That's a rival. But the means to that is this agenda. It's a four-part agenda, and that is simply we have the model that we are to continue in the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. That's verse 42 in this epistle reading that we had today. Let me put this verse in context. Acts chapter 1 is the story of the ascension of Christ into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God and then becomes Lord over the world and especially over the church. Then in the beginning of chapter 2, we have the event of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Then we have the people spilling out into the uh, streets, praising God and speaking in tongues. And the response of the people is, what is this? And Peter stands up and preaches the first Christian sermon. Now, just parenthetically, I have to say, I, I, I'm fascinated by the first sentence of the first sermon by the first preacher of the Christian church. It's a great line. He stands up and he says, men of Jerusalem, we're not drunk. <laughs> you got to love a religion that starts out like that. You know, you go to some churches and you think they want to stand up and say, men of Springfield, we're not dead. <laughs> well, then the sermon concludes and 3,000 people are baptized. We're told then the following Sunday, another 2,000 were converted and baptized, and the church is up and running. But between that day of Pentecost and the martyrdom of St. Stephen, a period, we're not exactly sure, maybe six, maybe seven years, the church is in a state of growth, and it's at peace. Now, that peace will disappear with the death of Stephen, but it's a nascent period in the life of this church when it comes into its own. You know, child psychologists say that the psychology of a child is essentially shaped by the time they're six years old, whether they're extrovert or introvert or reflective or this or that, uh, at six years old. And so during this six to seven year period, the church is experiencing a certain kind of nurture by which the Holy Spirit is making them what He wants them to be. You know, St. Luke visited Jerusalem some decades later. He was with St. Paul, and during that time he visited around and he asked questions of the Christians. What was it like at that time? And Luke is not simply a tourist with questions, but he is an analyst. He wants to know, how did the church become healthy? How did the church grow? Now, Luke is a Greek, and he's a physician. 
Greeks always want to know cause and effect. They were the ones who invented science, cause and effect. If the effect is the church was healthy, what caused that? He's also a physician. Physicians look and say, here's the problem. Here's the diagnosis. Here's the prescription, this medication, this surgery, this regimen of health. And then this uh, announcement of what the person will be if they continue in the health. That's the prognosis. And he looked at the church, and he came up with four things. He said they continued in the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Those things aren't random statements. That is deep analysis of what makes for a healthy church. Now, despite what you may have heard of me, I got to say as an interim pastor, I really don't know what I'm doing. And, and so I go to a verse like this and say, but I will do these four things. First of all, because I'm only going to be here for, I don't know, four months, ten months at most, and then I'm out of here. And this is agenda enough to become a healthy church. So the first thing I want to notice about this verse is that they continued in, or some translations say they were continuing in. That's an attempt to reflect a a Greek tense that we don't have in the English language, but it's an ongoing thing. They just didn't do the apostles' teaching, but they were continuing in the apostles' teaching over a period of time. And that's what we're going to do. Let's look at those four things one by one. Number one, they were continuing in the apostles' teaching. The word there is didache. We get the word didactic from that. It simply means teaching. There's a content to the faith. And if you were one of those early Christians, one of those first converts in Jerusalem, where would you have gone for an apostles' teaching? Well, that was easy. Just tootle up the street, knock on a certain door, and somebody like Rhoda or John Mark or Dorcas opens the door and says, yeah, come on in. We got Nathaniel in here uh, or John or Philip who heard Jesus preach his amazing sermon on the hillside. He's in the atrium now. Come in and hear him. Easy peasy. But that was then, and this is now where would any of you go today to get an apostle's teaching? Well, first and foremost, we would go to the New Testament. The 27 books of the New Testament are either by an apostle or by an immediate successor to an apostle. They are a written guarantee that this is the Word of God, the deposit of faith from the apostles. Uh, That's the first place we're going to do that. I mean, we we come to church and hear the gospel, the epistles read. That's what we're doing. Now, there are forces opposed to that New Testament. I'm thinking of four of them. There's the one teaching that is we can't be confident that this is a word from God. It's a historical document, but it's corrupted in some fashion. You know, some 15-plus years ago, there was the Jesus Seminar, And these were allegedly scholars, some of them were, some of them weren't, who identified 500 statements by Jesus, and then they examined them and voted on them, and they came up with four different votes. It's certainly by Jesus. It may have been by Jesus. It probably wasn't said by Jesus, and it certainly wasn't said by Jesus. You'll be interested to know that this group of so-called scholars identified only eight out of 500 as being certainly from Jesus. So there's those forces. 
Uh, a friend of mine who lived in southwest uh, Pennsylvania when I served there, later became bishop up north, uh, became a bishop, and he presented a resolution to the general convention, maybe the shortest resolution in history, and he proposed B001, resolved, the Bible is the Word of God. And you'll be interested to know that the House of Bishops voted down that resolution. They said it was divisive to the life of the church. So there's those forces. Then there's the people who, it's an indirect way of resisting, but they say, oh, my pastor, he really knows the Bible well, which is lovely for your pastor, but I want to know, but what about you? You know, are you going somewhere to learn these things? And that leads to the third one, which is people say, well, I'm not smart enough to read the Bible which I find an astonishing thing. If you're not as smart enough, then go to a beginner's class. We have Christianity 101 or Anglicanism 101 or some introductory class to the Bible, but they're not smart enough to go that. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that probably in the history of America, we are living in the greatest period of greatest biblical ignorance ever. I mean, there's some people I meet who seem to think that John 3.16 is the men's room on the third floor. Well, that's a confusion. I, I had one man, I finally twisted his arm and got him to come to a, a, an introductory class, and I said, okay, let's all turn to Genesis chapter 1. And I looked over this fellow, and he turned to the table of contents. Well, you know, that's okay, because when he went home that day, he now knew where Genesis was. He didn't know that before. In the church, we call that progress. <laughs> and then fourthly, there are the people who said, well, I've already read the Bible. Good. Well, I don't need to read it again. Well, that's not good, because you see, it's not so much that you read the Bible, but you discover when you read it that it reads you. And when you read it as an eight-year-old, that's one thing. But when you're 18, it's something else. And when you're 26, it's eight, it's something else. And when you're 56 and, 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 and 88, it's something else yet again. You never finish reading the Bible. I read something in Scripture this very last week, and I thought, golly, I didn't know that. So you keep coming back and reading Scripture afresh. So the first way we encounter the apostles' teaching is in the New Testament. But there's also the teaching to be got from books, magazines, and devotionals. And there's good devotionals out there. Forward day by day, um, uh, walk with God, encounter with God, daily bread, the upper room. All these are good. And if you want recommendation on any of that stuff or recommendation on any books, please come and talk to your clergy. There is a lot of junk out there in any Christian bookstore, but there's a lot of good stuff too. I think forebears, I think the church fathers would look at our time and say, oh my goodness, I wish we had what those people have. Let's use it. I also noticed that there's Christian radios. I'm re punching the things in my car this week and doing, and I think this city has more Christian radio channels than any city I've ever lived in. Well, that's fun. Listen to them, and you can learn there. 
There's also hymns and songs. One of the great things about hymns, you learn it, and then you inadvertently you learn some Scripture. I cannot tell you how often it has been my case when I'm with somebody who's dying, and they say, oh, Father Brad, it's just like it says in the Scripture, and then they quote a hymn to me. Well, that's okay. I mean, they have a truth from God, and we don't need to worry about whether this came from Charles Wesley or John the Apostle right now. We'll sort that out later but it's a truth from God, and that's all that needs to be known. There's also memorization. I am a Christian pastor who strongly believes that we should be memorizing Scripture. Can you imagine if every Christian memorized two verses a year in 10 years, what you would have? And if you're a young person, what you would have when you're 50 or 80, you would have an arsenal of the Word of God with you. There's also Sunday school. I know this Church runs Sunday school classes coterminous with worship, so you can come to a very roomy service and come to a very roomy Sunday school and have a good education in that regard. Uh, I hope that I will be able to teach a weekday class. I don't know what evening it will be. I don't know what time it will be. I don't know what the subject is. That's all forthcoming. But you all come. It'll be good. And lastly, there's uh, small groups. You get the Word of God in small groups. How many people here are in a small group somewhere? Not a lot of people. I wish everybody was in a small group. Okay, they continue the apostles' teaching. Did I leave anything out? Is there anything here that I didn't mention that I should have mentioned? You people are breaking my heart. The sermon... The sermon is the place... In fact, that's number two on the list that we get the Word of God. We should come here expecting that we will hear the Word of God in a sermon. It may be a good preacher, it may be a poor preacher, but you can learn something even from a poor preacher. We should be coming as expectant people, and that means we come as a praying people. You know, some people come up and complain about the sermon, and my response to that, it's true, maybe what they said, but I said, did you pray for the preacher? And they didn't pray for the preacher. And I said, well, you got what you asked for. So let's pray. I'm serious about this. Pray for the preacher and pray for all the people who are leading worship. There's a great American preacher in the 19th century named Henry Ward Beecher. His sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, But he was considered the Billy Graham of his day. The guy was phenomenal. Uh, He was a giant spiritually. And he was tutoring some students. He was in Boston, and he had six students with him in the morning. They went to the church where he preached, and then took him out into one of the suburbs in the early evening and preached again. The sermon in the morning was awesome. It was stunning. There were tears of repentance. There was joy among people. There was delight. The glory of God was revealed. And in the evening, it was a dud. In fact, the way Beecher put it in his own diary. He said, the sermon fell like an overdone souffle on the chancel steps. And they got in the train car to go back into the city of Boston, and one of the students says, how is it, Dr. Beecher? Your sermon was so powerful this morning, and it was so ineffective this evening. And he said, poor, I'm sorry, bad preaching is God's judgment on a prayerless congregation. So pray 
for the ministry of the Word. Let us continue in the Apostles' teaching. Number two on the list is fellowship. It's listed secondly, but I'm going to treat it last, so let's jump on to three. They continued in the breaking of the bread. I suspect you think you know what this means, and you're mostly right. Yes, it's the Holy Eucharist, but at this time, the Holy Eucharist was combined and interlapped with what we might call a potluck supper. So they had the potluck supper, and the Eucharist was part of it. Because of some abuses of that, St. Paul separated those two things, and it became separate. But I don't want us to miss the full picture. The Eucharist is a covenantal meal. You're going to hear that word from me a lot, covenantal. It means we're not simply in a relationship with God, which is about feeling and emotions, but we're in a relationship with God, which is expressed in a covenant. And God has appointed for almost all of His covenants a meal. This is my blood of the new covenant, He says, and it's about renewing our covenantal relationship. I love our closing hymn by Methodist Bishop James Montgomery. He talks about this, and the closing line, I got teary at the earlier service singing this. I always do. The tide of time shall never his covenant remove. His name shall stand forever, his changeless name of love. I mean, when you come up here to receive communion, you might be thinking several devotional thoughts, but one of them should always be this, God loves me, and that cannot be changed. That's powerful. Number four is they continued in the prayers. Tes pesuche, um, it's the plural. I want us to be careful here. Most translations say the prayers in the plural. But a handful of translations, most notably the New International Version, offer this translation, and they continued in prayer, singular. Is there a difference? There's a huge difference. There's a critical difference. Prayer, singular, suggests one person praying by him or herself without any liturgical form. Or maybe a circle of friends, knee to knee, uh, praying, but again, without a liturgical form. But to say the prayers indicates some early liturgical form. Friends, I'm talking about the first six and seven years of the life of the church, and they already had a liturgy in place. We Anglicans are liturgical Christians, and this should thrill us to think that we are doing what those first Christians were doing along the way. There's a Lutheran theologian, later uh, Eastern Orthodox, named Yaroslav Pelikan, and he suggests at this stage the infant church was already using on a weekly basis the Lord's Prayer and its worship, and some Eucharistic form. I'm right now doing, reading three books on the Didache. Uh, that was an early book uh, maybe written in 80, maybe written in 110, I incline toward the earlier year. That would make it earlier than some of our New Testament books. But in that book, it includes a Eucharistic form within five decades of the resurrection of Christ. Wow. And lastly, a German theologian of the 1950s named Joachim Jeremias I enjoy saying his name. It took me two weeks to learn how to pronounce his name. Joachim Jeremias, 
suggests that the sursum corda, that's the part in the Eucharist which says, lift up your hearts, we lift them to the Lord, let's give thanks, versicles and responses there. He suggests that Jesus himself may have used that at the Last Supper. Wow, again. Now, I want to use this title, The Prayers, to highlight the importance, indeed the essential importance, of worship. Worship is simply the most important thing we do. Much of what we do as Christians will pass away. Mission will pass away. Evangelism will pass away. Christian education, committees, vestry meetings. Did I hear an amen in the crowd? They will all pass away. But worship is an eternal and essential part of the experience of the believer and a joyful part. I came across this quotation from a Roman Stoic named Epictetus. Uh, he was contemporary to St. Paul, almost the exact birthday and death day. And this is what Epictetus says. This man's a pagan, and he puts most Christians to shame. He writes, it is a man's duty to praise and bless God and pray, pay him due thanks. Ought we not, when we dig and plow, to sing, great is God who has given these instruments where which we shall till the earth. Great is God who has given his hands to labor and the power to draw our breath in sleep. At every moment we ought to sing these praises and above all the greatest and divinest praise that God has given us the ability to understand his gifts and to use human reasons. And that man's a pagan. C.S. Lewis, in much the same vein, writes in Reflection in the Psalms, the Scotch Catechism. He doesn't say Scottish Catechism. I don't know why he says the Scotch Catechism. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But then he goes on, Lewis does, to comment, but we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify and in commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. I love the line that's in one of our Eucharistic prayers. It is meet, right, and our joy to give Him thanks. You know, our English word worship derives from two words, weorth, Anglo-Saxon word meaning worth, and skip, which means to write. We get the word scribe from there, and it is to write the worth of something. And worship is essentially declaring God's worth. You are good. You are holy. You are kind. You know, some churches are so into this, they write it on the altar. They put it on the wall there. They put it in the stained glass windows. Some Christian teenagers put bumper stickers on their notebooks for school. I saw a bumper sticker this week here in this city that said, God is merciful. And I thought, yes, that's worship. And we want to come here and to say to God, you are good. And practically speaking, this means that we all come to church to worship God every Sunday together. I was brought up in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, and in preparation for confirmation, we had to learn parts of the catechism. And one of the questions says, what is my duty? And the answer was, my duty is to worship God every Sunday in His church. So I commend to you to continue in the prayers. 
Lastly, this is number two, but it's lastly, I come to the fellowship. They continued in the fellowship. The, the, the Greek word there is koinonia. You may recognize coin. We get the coins that we have in our pocket. It means common. Nia is a variation of life. The word means common life. I like that as a translation. Most Bibles and most prayer books always translate this fellowship. And I have to confess, I do not like the word fellowship. I mean, to me, it conveys a picture of the fellowship hall with its shallow conversations about the golf game or the stock market or the weather. It tastes of stale graham crackers and lukewarm milk. After the service, in the fellowship hall, we will enjoy some fellowship. Yuck. Okay, I'm sorry. That's just me. And I have to confess, before we dismiss this low end of fellowship, let us at least acknowledge that it is a legitimate part of fellowship. It's the beginning of real fellowship. Aren't deep and significant social dynamics emerging under the breezy chatter of sports, family, work, and weather? We don't spill our hearts out to total strangers, do we? So it is in the context of growing fellowship and evolving trust. Statistics speak to the importance of fellowship. My, my favorite statistic of church growth was in my second church. I've been talking with the senior warden, and he talks about metrics of the church. I talk about measurables. And the three big measurables are membership numbers, stewardship numbers, and ASA, average Sunday attendance numbers. But here's another number. This was at St. Peter's Union Town, and Stan was just up the road from me uh, when I was there in that place. When I got there, the average Sunday was attendance was 45. They told me it was 60, but they lied to me. It was 45. And we worshiped in this beautiful, drop-dead, gorgeous little prairie Gothic church. And then we left and came all the way around into a Victorian house. And there we had fellowship in the fellowship hall with fellowship food. And one of the best fellowship food was coffee. It was a little 30-cupper pot of coffee. Now, when I left that church four and a half years later, we were just topping 100 in membership. But the statistic I love was we had to go out and buy a 60-cupper pot of coffee. We converted the 30-cupper to decaffeinated, so we tripled the amount of coffee we're drinking. And I just said, praise God, that's growth. Because the people wanted to come and they wanted to be together. That's important. We need to be together. That's what God said when He created us. It is not good for the man to be alone. And that's just not about the sexual romantic relationship of husband and wife. That's about all of us and all relations and all friendships. We need… I cannot be me without you. And I cannot do church without you. So let us come together in that fellowship. I love that word of being together. And yet I've been reading some stuff on uh, the internet and elsewhere about teenagers and, you know, the various social platforms they get on. And here's some eighth grade girl that says, I have 200 friends, but if you sit down with her face to face, she will say, I don't have a single friend. 
And isn't that what we want? A, a single friend you can pour your heart out to. There's a wonderful Anglican in Washington area named Oz Guinness. He's a sociologist, and he's a very savvy political thinker. Thirty years ago, he opined that the greatest crisis in America is proximity without intimacy. Think about that phrase, proximity without intimacy. Oh, we're all together, but we're not together. And even Jesus needed friends. Do you remember how in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turned to his disciples and he said, stay with me. I need you in this time. And if Jesus needs, how can we say we don't need the same? I had two closing stories about this and only have time to tell one, so uh, I'll tell you the funny story some other time. But the touching story is about a woman named Terry from my first church. She came into the church through my wife who taught a fifth and sixth grade girls Sunday school. One of the girls there had a girlfriend named Kelly, and Kelly started coming regularly. She left Sunday school, and she brought her parents. <laughs> Funny that <laughs> kids are bringing the parents instead of parents bringing the kids, but that happens sometimes. And the parent was Terry. She was converted, and her husband was converted. He got to be part of the men's group. And Terry went on to become president of ECW and a vestryman and a teacher in her own right. Now, this happened after I had left that church, but the ECW group had raised $16,000. That's a lot of money. And then they had to meet together, decide how they were going to give that money away. That's a fun meeting to have. And they had about 15 people show up. And I remember laughing. They, our sexton set up the chairs all in a row, and he had a little table and a gavel on it. And I called this meeting for 16 people, for crying out loud. But they got together, and she called him to order, and she had an opening prayer, and she distributed the agenda. But she said, before we get started, I want to say something. There's been some gossip in this church about me and my family, and my daughter. And the gossip I've heard in the bathroom over the stalls, I've heard in the hallway around the corner, I've been in the stairwell and heard it upstairs or downstairs. And the gossip is that my daughter, Kelly, who at that time was a senior, is pregnant. And I want everyone in this room to know that that gossip is absolutely true. Now, this has been hard on us. We know who the father is. We've met with him. We've met with his family. She's going to carry the child to term and put the child up for adoption. I don't know if they're going to get married or not, but it's been hard on us, my husband, me, and especially my daughter, who I love so much. And I just want you people to pray for us. And with that, she burst into tears and dropped her head and started sobbing at this table. Well, that wasn't in the agenda. And they all looked confused and didn't know what to say. And she just sat there, this poor woman, sobbing her heart out over her daughter who she loved. And then one went over here, Barbara came up, and she came up and she just knelt down. She put her arms around her. And she said, Christ, Derry, Christ. And Clover got up, and she walked up, and she just put her arm around her, and she leaned over and put her hair and kind of started humming in this spirit, I guess. 
And one by one, as though drawn by some kind of magnet, each woman in that group got up and they came up and they reached out and they wanted to touch Terry and touch somebody who was touching her. And then they prayed and then this person prayed and that person prayed. And they cried. And then somebody said, Amen. And then they all pulled out their handkerchiefs and blew their nose and wiped their tears and laughed. And then went and sat down together. And they decided how to give away $16,000. Now, in how many churches in America would something like that happen? A woman comes broken to church and puts on her smile and goes to the meeting and goes home with the same broken heart, but not in this church. Out of the Koinonia Fellowship, they loved her and opened healing for her. Do you see that? Do you see that those women mixing their arms and their tears and their heartstrings? Do you see that? Do you see them weeping openly and unashamedly and prayerfully without consciousness? Do you see that? Do you see that this is why Christ sent His Spirit at Pentecost to free us to love and to be loved like that? Do you see that? Do you see that this is the life into which holy baptism calls us? Do you see that? Do you see that this common life of supportive love is why apostles taught and pastors broke bread from house to house and people prayed that we might be that kind of church? Do you see that this is why apostles wrote and evangelists proclaimed and councils, sages counseled and prophets pronounced that God's people might walk in that kind of koinonia love? Do you see that this reflects the very life of the Holy Trinity, whereby God loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loves the Father and the, Son, and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son and the Father. And into the midst of that dynamic life, which the Orthodox call the perichoresis, we are invited to come and dance with joy. Do you see that? If you see that, then why not let it begin in you? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.